Last week, I um, took you to Ephesians 4 and presented a question to help you wrestle with. The question is, uh, as a church, what are you becoming in Christ? Um, Often we don't think about that. Sometimes we wonder what we're becoming as individuals, but very rarely do we ask the question, what are we as a church becoming in Christ? We looked at the passage that talked about shedding this old humanity with all of its greed and its vices and that sort of thing and putting on this new humanity. Often that's interpreted to refer to you as an individual, and it certainly starts with you as an individual. But the context on either side, I think, makes it clear in Ephesians 4 that he's talking about the body of Christ. And, um, and this is a particular expression of the body of Christ right here at Dillon Community Church. So I kind of explored with you, what, what are you becoming in Christ? I know you're in transition right now. Well, this week what I'd like to do is um, take a look at one of the verbs in Ephesians, one of the commands that um, uh, explains that. But before we get there, I'm going to do a short survey of Ephesians just kind of to tease you. So when you're reading Ephesians again, you'll know what to look for and to set the stage for this. So if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, I'm going to start in Ephesians 4. Now, Ephesians is, um, like all of Paul's books, he spends the first half of the book talking about theology. And theology just means the study of the words of God. It's a study about who God is. And uh, Paul often begins, or he always begins, not often, he always begins his books and his epistles with, let me tell you about who the Lord is. Before he explains, let me tell you about who you are and what does that mean. Ephesians 4 is the beginning of the section where he's talking about what does this mean to you, to us? What does this mean to the church? So he's gone through three chapters of explaining. Uh, You may remember from last week that the Jews and Gentiles have been brought together in one new redeemed humanity. That Christ himself broke down the barrier of the dividing wall that was caused by the Mosaic Covenant, the commandments in the Old Testament. He did away with all those and he created something entirely new the world had not seen yet. This was startling in the first century. Very, very counterculture, very radical, very new. So in Ephesians 4, he begins the process of saying, so what does that mean? How does that help us? And he uses a verb, and I'm using the New American Standard today because it happens to be very clear in this particular translation. It's the verb to walk. Now, if you think back about the, uh, the ancient Near East, the first century world, um, Paul's journeys even, how did they get around? They walked. A couple of times he's on ships, and that didn't always go so well. Had a few shipwrecks here and there, you know, snakes biting you, things like that. But the rest of the time he walked. And if you look at his missionary journeys and you map it out, which I've done, that's something that some of us like to do, it's around 14,400 miles of walking. It's a long ways. And it's walking a lot through Asia Minor. That's where he spent a lot of his time, over into Macedonia, Greece, uh, some other places. And uh, it was often mountainous. It's very challenging. Um, it was not very safe. The Pax Romana, you may have heard of that, the Peace of Rome, was in force on the major roads, but Paul didn't stick to the major roads often. He went through the back roads. And his life was pretty simple once he came to know Christ. He would wander to a place, share Christ, get beat up thoroughly, and leave and go to the next place. He'd share Christ, get beat up thoroughly, leave and go to the next place. 
And that happened over and over again. When he got to the end of the trail, he would turn around and walk back and go visit all the churches where he'd share Christ to encourage the believers and get beat up again. That's a common pattern in Acts for Paul. Every step of the way, it was unsafe. It was rugged territory, and he walked. And they often walked together in groups. So he had Timothy with him, Silas part of the time, um, Luke. Luke was with him in uh, Acts, he says. So he had a band of people with him. And that's how they traveled. That's how they protected themselves. So walking was the speed at which life occurs for the ancient people. They didn't have any other faster way. I'm walking back and forth, not to drive you crazy, just to illustrate. This is the speed with which they live life. I landed on Friday from Chicago. I live life at a different speed. A month ago, I landed from Kathmandu. I could get to Kathmandu, teach a course, and get back in uh, 14 days. In fact, I taught two courses while I was there. My daughter went to college in Boston, and I flew her back and forth uh, for the first three years. The fourth year, and we used to give her a hard time because she never cried because she didn't miss us. Had a great time in college. The fourth year, she wanted her car um, for her senior year, and so she and I did a road trip. It's one of the most fabulous things I've ever done in my life to take a four-day road trip with my daughter. We had so much fun. When we finally got to Boston, 2,100 miles later, she said, Dad, if you had driven me out the first year, I would have cried every night and may not have gone back. I had no idea how far Boston was from Denver because it's only a a three-and-a-half-hour plane ride, right? We live life at a different pace, don't we, today? They walked. And so Paul deliberately chose this walking verb because the walking verb communicates life. It's what life is like. So many of your translation actually translate this verb to live. Live as something. But the real verb is to walk. So I'm going to walk you through these verbs. The first one is in chapter 4, verse 1. First thing he says to this church, what they're becoming in the Lord. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Now, if you're using the NIV, it probably says live. That's my guess. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This is the key verb in the book right here. The key imperative. Walk in unity. So the very first thing I have to ask you as a church is, are you unified? It's very difficult to be unified. That's got to be the hardest thing in the world. It doesn't matter if I'm talking about my children, my wife. Although I keep telling her if she were to get her life together and be perfect, our marriage would be better. Um, now she hasn't bought into that yet. Unity is a hard thing, isn't it? It's hard for any, any place. When you create a team environment at work, it doesn't happen by default. It happens because you put intentional and purposeful energy into it. Unity is not the natural result in a fallen world. If it was, Paul wouldn't have to command it. That's my theory on these verbs. And so unity is something that you have to preserve. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's up to you. It's up to you whether you become that or not. Well, he didn't stop there. So walk in unity. And then if you look in verse 17... So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. Okay, pause. 
Last week we talked about the fact that this command was given to Gentiles. So Gentiles don't walk like the Gentiles. I love it. It's really demonstrating how different they have become in Christ. They're a different people now than they were. And he describes that. They're futile in their minds. They're darkened in their understanding. They're excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and on and on and on. Don't be that way. By the way, the fact that these are commands says that you still can be that way if you want to. You can still have a hard heart. You can still decide to, um, to not pay attention to what you've learned. And he's arguing, don't walk as a Gentile. So he's saying, walk in holiness. Be different than the rest of the world. So when the world looks at us as a church, and specifically you as a local expression of that, when the world looks at your church, do they see something different? Good question to explore. Well, then he doesn't stop there. Look in chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for you an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So he's saying, walk in love. Didn't Christ talk about that a little bit? A new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. All right, when the world looks... Do they see, when they look here at this church, do they see a fellowship of believers that love one another? Do you take care of each other? I don't know the answers to the questions, by the way, because this isn't my church. But it's a good question that I can ask you. Does the world see that? That is the number one defining characteristic in Scripture of what the world sees or how the world reacts when they look at you. Love. In fact, 613 commands in the old in the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant, and Christ reduced them to two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and peace, and love your I mean strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Paul reduces it to one. Love your neighbor as yourself. He doesn't even quote the first one. So somehow this love has got to be important. Are you a community of believers that demonstrates love? Remember, this is just the introduction. Then he says in verse 6 of chapter 5, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light. Walk as children of light. So this is the fourth one. Walk in light. Now, light in the ancient Near Eastern world had um, it had a predominant meaning. Christianity modified it a little bit. The predominant meaning for light had to do with enlightenment, how we perceived and understood truth and reality. Going all the way back to the Greek philosophers, specifically Plato started it, um, he argued very, um, very carefully that you could never really know the truth. You could never get there on your own. Uh, we're always moving toward it, but we never quite achieve it. And in fact, you'll never achieve it until we escape the confines of the material world. When we escape this world and we achieve, or we head somewhere else outside the bounds of materialism, the material world, then we'll be able to see enlightenment. That introduced into world thinking an escapist mentality, which every worldview, including ours, has. 
Think about what we say in Christianity. I'm going to die and go to heaven. Everything will be okay. But what did Christ say? I came that you might have life abundantly now. Right? All the words that describe the new earth and the new heaven are already in force right now. Granted, it will get better. But we shouldn't live with an escapist mentality. Where does the Bible say you die and go to heaven? All the pictures are Christ coming to us, heaven coming to us, the new earth descending on us. This is our home. See that out there? That's our home. All of creation, as far as we can see and beyond, was made for you and you and you and you and you and you. All of it. God didn't need it. We are the crowning, the crowning moment, the defining moment of His creation, according to Genesis. All of creation was designed for us. This is our home. It's going to be refashioned, Peter says. And so we should not have an escapist mentality. We look forward to the day when the Lord returns and delivers us from a broken, fallen world and restores it. But this is still our home. I used to teach at Colorado Christian University, and I asked a question one day. I had a little bit of a clue in one of the diaries that my students kept, 40 students, 18 years old. How many of you are looking forward to heaven? Not one hand went up. I said, why? How come you're not looking forward to heaven? And their answers uh, astounded me and saddened me because it was portrayed in their minds as one long eternal church service. We're all laying on our face. My response is, shoot me now, put me out of my misery. <laughs> no, when you just look and you look in the pictures of the new heavens and the new earth, the kingdoms and the nations are coming and going. What do you think they're doing when they're going? They come into the New Jerusalem and they worship the Lord and then they leave. What's that all about? Well, I don't know about you, but I'm going to be enjoying the mountains. I grew up on the ocean and I got here as fast as I could and I've loved every minute of it. The picture in the new earth is we're enjoying life the way we're meant to enjoy it. The way we enjoy it today. When you cut your finger and it bleeds and it coagulates, is that a product of creation or the curse? What do you think? Any takers? Curse? So they weren't made that way to begin with? I think they were. I think God meant me to stub my toe so I could learn. And I think that's what it's going to be like. I think God is just as pleased with a bridge that is beautiful and doesn't fall as He is with believers loving each other. This is our home right here. This is what we were made for. This is it. Enlightenment. We don't have to escape this world to have enlightenment. That's what the Holy Spirit does. You understand the truth right now. used to be, prior to you accepted the Lord, there was a darkness there was an ignorance. It was difficult to understand. That's not true anymore. In fact, is the truth is, Peter said you don't need teachers because you have the Holy Spirit. That's why teachers are, were called a gift. We're a gift to you. Not because you need us. Because you can figure it out. Well, this idea of light has another whole metaphor that Christianity added to it. Another whole layer is that we are lights that shine in the darkness. Because we have seen the truth and we've experienced Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, we can now share that truth with others. 
I read to you the benediction last week out of, out of Ephesians 3. To God be the glory in the church. That's you. And so not only do you have that ability to be enlightened, that sense of enlightenment, because you have God dwelling within you. We sang about that this morning. But then you become a light to those around you. So as a church, walk in the light. So the question is, are you a church that walks in the light? Do you reflect his glory to a lost and dying world? There's a lot of people in this world that are desperately broken. You are too, by the way. Desperately broken. I know that about you. The only difference is, is that you're on the road to healing and forgiveness and maturity. You're, you're on the road that's transforming you to become what you were intended to be all along, a true human. Where you love people, you enjoy each other. You're already on that road, but there's a lot around you that aren't. And so being light to the world doesn't mean you're always sharing the gospel. It means you're also loving people, caring for them. You're reaching out to them. You're reflecting the glory of the Lord. Then the final one is in Ephesians 5.15. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So walk in wisdom. This is the famous verb, command, that has all the husband and wife, parent, children, uh, slave, master type language in it that we often like to argue over. But we miss the point. The point is walking in wisdom means that you follow all these other verbs. You take into account the time and recognizing that we have a mission in this world. In fact, I'll give you a little test. I won't answer it. I'm just going to give you the question. You're sitting on an airplane, and you look at the person next to you, and they're reading a book, and you say to them, what's that book about? And they say, what's well, a mystery? Oh, okay. What's that book about? Oh, it's a history of the Western civilization from 1500 on. Oh, really? What's that book about? Oh, it's a book on uh, pharmaceuticals. I'm, I'm studying that. I want to learn about medicine. Okay. So now you're on an airplane. Somebody looks at you, and you're reading your Bible, and they say, what's that book about? How are you going to answer it? In one sentence. One idea. It's hard to answer, isn't it? I do it with my students all the time. And they're always going, uh, it's not really an autobiography. It's got murder in it. It's got rape. It's got creation. It's got slavery. It's got abuse. It's got redemption. Sacrifice. Who? That's tough. Walk in wisdom. This, these, all these concentrated verses under this one, walking in wisdom, talking about the family. In the first century world, the family was the parents, children, and the slaves. They all lived together in the home. And so I think what Paul is saying is that in the church, um, you can fool anybody. I can fool you. You don't know me. If you want to know what I'm really like, ask my wife and my children. And you'll get the truth. And I think what Paul is saying is that that when you bring it down to the family level, that's where the truth is revealed. And that's where integrity should be its, its clearest. Not that you don't make mistakes, not that you're not broken and all that, but when you look in the family unit, that's where you should find the gospel in its clearest sense. Forgiveness. Overlooking each other's sins. Forgiving one another. Caring for one another. 
But if you can't do it in the family unit, then you can't do it. It's not possible. You can't pretend by doing it here but not doing it in your families. It just doesn't work that way. That's why Paul spends all that time in this section on the family. Well, then all of a sudden, in Ephesians 6.10, you have this the last imperative, the last command, very famous, and he changes it. doesn't use the word walking. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm. By the way, it's the third time he's used that command. Stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I've heard this passage preached on, on around the world in churches, and they all follow a very similar pattern. The orientation is, it's me against Satan. Highly individualized. Me against Satan. Okay? Even though every other verb before this is dealing with the church. We take this one a little differently. And I've heard it taught that um, all of these are defensive pieces of weapon, except the sword, which is the offensive part. It doesn't make sense to me. Uh, would you tell a, a soldier today that you know everything on you is defensive except for this one thing? Well, that's not how we, military people think. By the way, for those that served, thank you. Thank you for your service. I've heard it said that this is dealing with how to turn someone that's moving astray to recognize the spiritual battle of Satan and to turn the other direction. So the first thing is truth. You have to stop and recognize the truth. The next thing is a breastplate of righteousness. It's a recommitment to what God has done for you. The next thing is putting on the right feet, shoes on your feet, indicating and you're gradually turning back toward the Lord. I've heard all those. Here's a question. If you're in the first century world and you read this, is that how you would have interpreted it? I'm going to show you a video, two-minute clip out of a video that might change your mind about this. It's a clip from the scene uh, from the movie Gladiator. And uh, let me just tell you a little bit about what you're going to see here. This is uh, the opening scene in it. And you're going to see a Roman infantry unit fight uh, an army of barbarians. The wording that's used in this passage, in this, I mean, this, uh, uh, the, the, the wording that's used in Ephesians is exactly the armament you're going to see here. This is the closest I've ever seen to a movie following a biblical script. This passage right here. All right? Take a look at it. These are Roman soldiers getting ready. It's a little bit graphic. It's a two-minute battle scene. That's the imagery Paul used. That's a Roman general. Maximilius. Archers ignite. So the Roman archers, see, you'll see how ordered they are in their process compared to the barbarians who are not. 
all of their arrows. Notice the big shields that the Romans are carrying. It's what the people of the first century lived with. So now the Legion, the line of battle is marching forward. Hold the line, the general says. Stand firm. See how ordered the Romans are? Hold the line. Stand firm. Don't give in. Stay with me. There's the infantry men right there. See that right there? Okay. What would happen to a Roman infantry person if they were out on the field all by themselves? Would they have survived? How about if they were in disarray? Would they have survived? No. First century uh, military strategy, all of the Roman infantryman's armament was designed for one thing in mind, to stay in a line of battle. Paul uses the exact words to describe it. So the shields, he had a choice of which word he was going to use. Uh, they had a little round shield that they wore on their forearm. Actually, it would have been this arm. I'm left-handed, you know. And even the sword that he used is different. He chose the big shield that the infantrymen used, and he chose the sword that the infantrymen used to illustrate a point. Because what, what they would do is when they came to the field and they were going to ready, and they were going to do battle. You saw the archers; they would send all the arrows out and kill as many as they could up front. Then they'd march out to the middle of the field, and the first line would kneel down and they'd lock all their shields together down the line. The second line behind it would kneel between them and lock all their shields on top. Then they would wait until the barbarians had had emptied their arsenal. They would just sit there and wait. And when they had emptied their arsenal of flaming arrows, then they would stand up and annihilate them. It's the reason why the Roman Empire took over the world. They're organized. So Paul used the infantryman's armament to describe what the spiritual battle is all about. It's a metaphor. This is not about me and Satan. Do you think I stand a chance against Satan? Absolutely none. This is a plural imperative, a plural command, like all the rest. It's addressed to a church. The orientation is not me against Satan. The orientation is me next to Rob Schmidt, next to Steve, next to Darla. We all have a line of battle. And when we lock our shields together, Satan cannot get through. And this is all underneath the primary verb in chapter 4, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. If you find disunity in your church, Satan has already won. That is his number one way of penetrating a church. And so how do you as a church fight him? By standing side by side. 
And you could carry the metaphor a little bit later in the movie. You see it. What happens if somebody is wounded, if a soldier is wounded? Do we leave that soldier out there? No, we drag them back behind the lines where they're safe. What happens when a person, a believer, sins? They fall. They're broken. Do we leave them hanging out there? No, we grab them pull them back. It's intriguing to me, Matthew 18, the famous passage. If you see your brother or sister in sin, go to them. If they don't listen to you, then bring a friend with you. Bring someone else that they'll listen to. If they don't listen to the two or three of you, take it to the church. If they don't listen to the church, treat them as a sinner and a tax gatherer. And we have put in there the idea that that means we kick them out of the church. Show me one passage where Paul, uh, where Jesus treated sinners and tax gatherers that way. Just one. No, it's just the opposite. He was willing to make himself unclean to go to their houses and eat with them and love them, care for them. Paul uses a whole different metaphor to communicate the same thing. Pull them back behind the line and protect them. This is, friends, this is a real spiritual battle. This is not pretend. This spiritual battle will go until the last death, the last enemy death is conquered. We are in a battle. Stand firm. Hold the line. So the question is, are you as a church, does that characterize you? You're in the middle of transition. Transition is a great time for Satan to come in. It's a perfect time. I've seen him just shred churches. Don't be guilty of that. Side by side. So I don't think the first century reader, when they read this, would have ever got the idea, this is a story about Satan and me. I think they would have grasped, because of their understanding of what we saw, this is about us banding together. And the most priceless quality we have is unity. If we have unity, all the wisdom, love, everything else works fine. And if we don't, we've already lost the battle. It's already over. If the Roman line had fragmented in any of these battles, they would have never survived. Do you understand what I'm saying from that video clip? Powerful, powerful, powerful metaphor that he uses. I'm going to read the benediction out of, out of Ephesians 6. Stand with me. Last week, I read the one out of Ephesians 3. This is the second benediction in Ephesians. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. Have a great week. The Lord be with you.